0: Right now. Hey everybody, you're in the green room for Disrupt TV. Full employment recession. Is the market back or is this a dead cat bounce? Wait, wrong show. All right, we're back here at Disrupt TV. You're in the green room. We're gonna be talking about what's up, what the hottest trends are, who the coolest authors are, and of course the folks that are driving digital transformation and changing the media landscape. So who do we have here today? We're gonna go reverse order and uh, introduce yourselves, tell us where you're at and
1: more importantly, what you're talking about today. So, Joel, where are you calling in from? What are you talking about? Dallas, Texas, I'm talking about my new book called The Me-Tail Economy, all about the new consumer and what retailers and consumer brands can do about it.
0: Me-Tail, me-Tail. All right, cool. All right, John, what are you talking about today? And What's in the back of your board? I'm a little worried.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, uh, we're going to – John Reed, Diginomica here. We're going to deconstruct – industry cloud BS and then we're gonna ask some tough questions customers should be asking about the metaverse and see if we're still standing after that. Ooh the
0: metaverse. All right, cool. We'll get there. Sanjeev, where are you calling in from? What are you
3: talking about today? I'm calling from Chicago today, Ray. You know, pleasure to be here. I'm talking about digital transformation, digital platforms, and most importantly advantage uh, from Ingram Micro.
0: Very, very cool. And we should talk about that secret thing you call DigiOps. It's like the secret invention <laughs> you guys have in the back end. So absolutely. All right. And I'm here with my awesome co host, Liz Miller. Um, she's rocking it from Morocco. Or where are you today?
4: No, I'm back in Los Angeles. And you know that I live to host for Vala. So, Vala, buddy, sorry you couldn't be here, but yeah, I got your spot, man.
0: Yeah. Vala, I think, was in Spain. We don't know what hour of the day, but we'll punk him later since people don't eat until about now in Spain. So,
4: yeah, it's really. fine. It's fine. At any time I can sit in for Vala and ask questions for Vala, you know I'm here.
0: We will be Hello. asking for VALA at CCE. All right, well with that, Ellen, I'm going to turn it back to you, and you can do the count.
4: All right, three, two, one.
0: Very, very interesting setup. We will pop this up. Welcome to Disrupt TV. So you're here with my awesome co-host today, Liz Miller, the one and only, the I chairman of CX, the whisper of CMOs. She's a vice president and principal analyst here at Constellation Research. Val Afshar is out somewhere in Europe today. We'll have to figure out where he is. I'm Ray Wong, the other co-host here at Disrupt TV, and I want to welcome you here to the show. This is episode number 297, and we're super excited to have our first guest, Sanjeev Sahu. He's the Executive Vice President and Chief Digital Officer of Ingram Micro. He's an award-winning global technology executive and EVP, and more, of course, he's the worldwide leader Um, at Ingram Micro, um, and they are the worldwide leader in technology distribution and the brand behind a lot of established and emerging technology brands. He's leading the global digitization of Ingram Micro. This is one of the biggest, one of the biggest digital transformation projects we know of in terms of size, scale, and um, impact And of course, he's doing this in two different industries. Um, He's come back from well, actually, he's been involved in two different industries: in financial services, in transportation, and now here in the tech and commerce space. So he's won tons of awards for leadership and technology innovation. He's been on, you know, one of the ten global executives named to the twenty twenty one Business Transformation Hall of Fame, which is our BT one hundred and fifty. And of course, he's also an alumni of Harvard Business School. He brings unique combinations of business acumen, technical prowess, and he holds several patents for data and streaming technology. He's also an industry thought leader, contributes to HBR, Wired, Forbes, and is a TED speaker. And you can follow him at Sahu S A N J. So Sanjeev, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much, Ray. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And wow, that was a long introduction. I don't know if I deserve all that. You know. Sanjeev, I don't think you've
4: been, do you done. I don't think you've done enough. I think I. It doesn't sound like you've been busy at all. I'm really worried. <laughs> I feel like you need a couple more things on your plate. Wow.
0: <laughs> so we were welcome here to the show. Liz, you have the first question, take it away.
4: Yeah. You know, listen, that was an amazing intro and it does have my head spinning because I think when people start talking about digital and digital transformation and these kind of massive shifts that we're all going through, it gets a lot of people thinking, right? So you have now been living through this. So can you share what some of the essentials are to actually running a digital business? Like what are these things? Like, I keep hearing things like, like digital twins. What is that? How do we run these things?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Liz. You know, like digital transformation, I told Ray last time, is kind of like a cliche word, but we need to understand how to run a digital business. It's not another IT project that needs adoption. We need to start with the experience and really focus on how we create a digital operating model to operate like a digital company. And most of the traditional companies need to learn to do that. Now, there are three fundamentals to actually run a digital business number one is we need the network we need the network of our customers and the network of our vendors the demand and supply very important and we should continue to actually embrace and make this network better number two data it's not every company has data but we should really focus on how we use data to personalize the experience bring in machine learning ai create that value for exchange for the digital platform. Number three is really have a differentiating product and a platform, which really makes you stand out. And then when we talk about this whole digital twin, a digital twin means everything that you do today in your business, you can do it through a digital platform. It's a complete business model transformation. The way you create a different experience for your partners, for your employees, for your vendors, everything, not just taking one part of the system and automating it. Because in my words, Liz, before people thought digitization was automation. Today, digitization is experience. Experience first, automation follows. And just innovation first and adoption second doesn't work. So a digital business means you have to look at holistically and really drive that business model change to a platform model.
0: Yeah, this is a huge shift, right? And I think the last time you were with us, I mean, you coined a term and you're talking about this thing called digital operations or DigiOps. Um, we kind of glanced over it. We didn't go deep enough in it. You're in the middle of building and creating that inside an organization, something you've done before in the past. So tell us more about DigiOps is and why that important? Because you know, a lot of digital transformations have failed.
3: Yeah, it's a very important concept, Ray. you know, like many times we lose the focus on value. We try to build as a technology, but shiny technology is pointless. If it does not get to be operated, we talk about the same thing, DevOps. What is DevOps? You build code and you operationalize it, release it, deploy it for actual production use. But why not DgOps? You build all the shiny technology but does it really create any value in the books of the company, truly differentiating value? So DigiOps means you are truly creating an operational spirit, a team, a group that constantly creates that digital operating model. Even in my organization, I have Digitech and DigiOps means that as technology is building, it can be technology changes all the time, right? It can be machine learning, new products, new components, the group of people and leaders are taking it to operationalize it in the way we create value for our customers we create truth. value for our partners improving revenue improving market share that's what the true spirit is without this group and without this concept most of it becomes like amazing shiny technology uh, and a good technology use it never sees a life so in my mind also this has to be simultaneous ray you cannot first build yeah. the tech and then operate so DG is a continuous way of creating and capturing value ongoing. So I call it digital transformation. Never stops. It's not a started and ended, but DG is a new norm. So this is a what cycle. Is like you're seeing we learn. Exactly. Yeah. Learn how to operate digitally. That's where I see the gap. And that's what we're doing at Ingram micro. We have a group called digital operations whose responsibility is to take this technology and create that new experience for our business.
4: I I was actually just gonna ask you that because I think I totally agree, right? Everyone thinks about digital transformation like it's gonna have a stop sign. And then when we get there, we can all celebrate like it's this great destination (laughs) and it's not, right? It's this ongoing journey, it's always changing. So with that in mind, how are you doing this? And and what have you seen kind of come up whether it's, you know, good, bad or ugly? It's an ongoing journey, it's always changing.
3: Yeah. So this digital journey, Liz, is not easy. It's not for the faint of the heart. You know, the number one thing is we need to create that spirit in the organization, focus on why, focus on the customer. And then you really have to have feedback loose because you got to move in small, agile sprints and learn how it works because we have to focus on the art of possible and not the art of impossible there will be a million ways to people will tell you this will not work we have done it this way we have to understand that what has got us here will not take us there so what it means is in, in creating a digital operating culture is we understand small sets of features and understand does it work does it not work improve your feedback loops with your customers with your employees with your partners with your vendors and understand How do you actually make it take it to market and take it in small steps and small sprints? There are a lot of challenges. Technology is sometimes difficult. You have such a massive footprint of Ingram Micro. I mean, if you imagine, we reach out to 90% of the population of the world. We have more than 170,000 resellers. We touch 1,500 vendors globally. It's not easy to create that operating culture in a short time with the teams have done. It's not easy. It comes with the culture of the company, the mindset of the company, support from everybody and everybody coming together to figure out, okay, we all understand the focus on why we focus on value creation. We think big, but act small. We cannot like think big and then take for a long time because you cannot have an innovative idea for 18 months. By the <laughs> time you do, the market will change. Let's take small steps and keep on, you know, iterating, iterating. That's what we look at it. And sometimes there will be failures, but fail fast, do not fail big. And that's what is very important
0: yeah feel fast but learn from your mistakes right away and, and you know those dynamic feedback loops are important as you learn right some of them are digital some of them are analog some are because like you know you're working with teams and they're starting to understand that interaction with each other i mean it's, it's really important right as you build these multi-sided platforms um, to really change this business um, so what does that mean for the digital journey or if it never ends what's next for um, ingram's
3: digital journey in itself see if you look at Ray, we started with our platform x vantage it's not a website. It's not an e-commerce. XVantage is a AI-driven, self-learning ecosystem. We have more than 40 years of data. We work together to actually build, powered by our cloud technologies and our data, to build XVantage. We have launched XVantage, the new platform for our partners in US, Germany, Canada, and we are launching it across different geographies. You know, in by the early next year. We're also launching a new platform for our vendor partners. Remember, I talked about a platform business in demand and supply both to take the complexity out for our vendor partners, easy onboarding, create that seamless integration between our resellers and our, you know, and our vendor partners. So we are launching that platform, and we also have launched our platform for our employees. You know, in twenty-nine countries. You know, so we are constantly adding more features, capabilities in two-week sprints. It's not going to stop because we are adding more and more functionality we are rolling out to all different countries we are onboarding new resellers and understanding from how we can move from being a pure distribution company to really have a single pane of glass for our customer partners take complexity out so that we can be that solution provider it's like ray having a 55 billion dollar company stand behind this reseller say we are there for you giving you the insights to run your business better with the machine learning and AI. And that's what we want to become the true partner. That's where we are going, you know, and that's what we are excited about and proud of what the teams are building.
0: Yeah, super exciting. Oh, sorry.
3: No, I listen,
4: I, I'm tired just hearing what all of the teams are doing. Cause that's amazing. First off, like, wow, that's huge but you talk about something called, about, you know, your it's this call to action of organizations to be digitally fit, right? So what does that mean, digital fitness? What does it actually entail? And what are you really asking? And, you know, what do organizations really need to do to kind of access what this, uh, I don't know, like digital BMI is gonna be? Like, what are we, what are we really calling on organizations to? I don't know, run? do we get trainers or, along
3: the way? Are there other right, people? I like, are they like, like, like a Peloton course? I don't know. So it's, it's great. A challenge. Post-COVID, we all put on weight and we are all focusing on physical fitness, right? But fitness, physical fitness is a lifestyle change. You cannot be fit for six months and become unfit. You always check your BMI, go to your doctor. But more than 50% of the Fortune 500 disappeared since 2000. What is the longevity of the organizations? Do we know that what level of digital fitness the organizations have? Can we evaluate what is the state of their legacy applications? How is their data maturity? Can they have a product mindset? Do they really have the, the... Can they innovate and operate, integrate together? Do they really have focus on customer experience? There are several factors that contribute to a digital BMI. And based on the digital BMI, you decide what is the fitness regimen you need to have? Are you physically fit? Uh, sorry, digitally fit. For example, I need a diet. You, I need a digital diet. <laughs> you actually have a diet plan and a workout plan, you know, like yeah. you can have any plans for the digital fitness. Let's say the four things I will tell, you know, about having a digital fitness regime for organization is number one, you need to have that operational and digital spirit. Focus on why. It is not an IT initiative. Yeah. Everybody should come together. Number one, creating value at the moment of truth. Speed at need is very important. Number two, planning. There's always temptation to do many things, but can you perform while you transform? You cannot do transformation in isolation. So that planning is very important. Then comes your technology. Is your architecture ready to pivot? Is it ready to be different models? Can you create that scale? Can you create that connectivity? And then the fourth thing is governance. Focus on value. Everybody should be a chief value officer. Focus on value. Work on the programs that really drive value. You cannot work on everything. That is your regimen. That's how you become digitally fit. That's how you improve your digital BMI, and you can create your longevity and stay relevant of these organizations. Love it,
0: love it. We've had late night conversations about these topics uh, for for many years, and and I think you know one of the things that you said to me that I resonated was really the fact that it was important to get the experience right first, and then. Mm-hmm figure out automation. A lot of folks are jumping in automation right away. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of mistakes they can make. And you said this a number of times. How do you apply that? And like, why would you want to automate crap?
3: <laughs> so- it's very important, Ray. It's a, it's a total paradigm shift because when you automate, you start from your what you have, your comp- legacy, and try to fit into an experience, right? We today walk in the late night and jump in a car of a stranger and we trust our lives few years ago we never did that we get an uber we don't know who they are but it's the experience that matters now how the automation follows because to do that you have to click a button and do that yeah. so today think of distribution i call it a sunday monday blend people who are buying technology on sunday they're watching a football game they're keeping their feet up clicking on instacart clicking on doordash tracking when their food is coming and enjoying that experience monday morning figure out and calling what are my solutions when are they coming how do we blend this sunday monday experience that is what is needed we need to have consumerization and distribution need to start with the customer first the single pane of customer once we start with that we will immediately automate the back end we can provide the experience by cloud data pivot but we shouldn't start with a machine learning algorithm and see please use it Start with what the customer wants and then automate. That is a big shift in digitization today. We call Huge. it become an experience driven yeah. organization.
4: Love it, love it. So interesting. I've heard you talk about creating value at scale. you know you've been talking about value, you've been talking about speed uh, and and kind of meeting that customer where they are. The question is often how? because I feel like when it comes to digital transformation, certainly when it comes to experience, We've been at this for a while. Like, oh, we didn't yeah. wake up today and realize, like, hey, experience matters. Or, like, a, we've, a lot of people have been banging their head against a wall a bit around things like this. So, how do you recommend people actually achieve those things? How do we get to that point of where we have speed and we're getting that speed of need, where we're getting to that point of value?
3: It's an excellent question. And Ray knows that, you know, we have been joining Ingram Micro about a year and a half, and the teams are doing phenomenal. We are, launching platform at a super fast speed many years of legacy we are actually replacing with our new platform so i'm super proud of what the teams are are doing but there is some secrets to it you know for example you need to have a good blend of inside out view and outside in view we brought in some talent from outside right you know from the hyperscalers amazing talent who came in and brought in the view of how to improve our technology at the same time we elevated some people from inside you distribution from many many years you cannot do one or the other that is why i call about the whole perform as you transform the ops and the tech we put them together and when you put them together and then focus on the customer and the journey and focus on why it really creates to partnership because one group teaches the other the art of possible with technology and the other group teaches the other while everything is possible but you need to be feasible for the customer. This whole balance between possibility and feasibility is the key. Once you match the possibility with the feasibility and learn to structure your teams and focus on that, you need to really have speed as an essence and bring teams together and always figure out that, you know, focus on the art of possible. Don't get bogged down by what will not work. How can we do this better? How can we first and be incrementally better every day? Magic happens. So yeah. today I, I just do the talking, but the teams are doing the work globally and they're doing launching globally so many countries in a few months. Super proud. That's how is the only secret I could think about. Love it.
0: And Dave, you've done this before in logistics. You've done this before in financial services. Um, you and I know we've talked a lot about this. It's not about the technology sometimes. <laughs> it's not about, you know, um, it's not about the, the processes. It's ultimately comes back to leadership and culture. And I'll, I'll leave you with this. Like, what have you done in all these three organizations that get people so excited about where that future is going to be and where that art of possible is? I know we'll talk more at Constellation Connected Enterprise on, on stage, but but tell me more, what, what are you seeing? Like, how do you create that magic? Because I'll be honest, like Ingram Micro, um, you know, about five years ago was a very different company. So
3: Yeah, I think it comes with the culture today in Ingram Micro support of our CEO, Paul, Bay, you know, everybody, our leadership, we all, I think it comes to uh, Ray, it's about being passionate. You know, there's a difference between job and passion. And I think what drives me more is to make an impact. And that makes me passionate. I want to create an impact. I want to transform 30,000 employees in Ingram Micro deserve a chance to transform the industry. They're looking forward to create differentiating experience for our partners and that keeps me up at night that excites me every day to come to work over and over again and every time we solve a new problem for example we can give our partners a way to track on a map the technology brings a smile we don't deliver checklist we delight our partners that motivates us and little bit of success inch by inch day by day When we see that value creation, that excites me, and then it has to be contagious, right? That we, as leaders, we need to drive passion to everybody. And then the last thing I'll say: many times, as CEOs or leaders, we focus on that 40% chance of failure versus a 60% chance of success. Before risk was bad, we are a $55 billion company. We need to have the mindset to figure out calculated risk is innovation. So let's take some risks, be bold and be brave because if you are not bold, if you don't have that spirit, it will not work. So I will say, Ray, my advice is have that spirit, have that spirit to drive change and don't get bogged down by history because the risk of not trying and is worse than the risk of trying and failing. It's okay to try. So bias for action is more important than bias for results. So I have bias for action with my team. Let's try and rest follows. Love
0: it. Passion is super contagious. We're Sanjeev Sahu, Executive Vice President and Chief Digital Officer at Ingram Micro. You can follow him at Sahu Sanj, S-A-N-J. And of course, catch Ingram Micro. You guys are at our Constellation Connected Enterprise event in in a week or 10 days. Oh my god. And of course, um, you've got your big event in Orlando coming up. So thanks a lot. Thanks for being on the
3: show and happy Friday. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Liz. Always excited to be here. Thank you.
4: The art of possible. That's not easy. That's no, just, I, just not easy.
0: Culture of abundance versus a culture of scarcity. I mean, I think mindset is super important. So
4: talk about a culture of abundance, John Reed.
0: John Reed, you are here. You're in the house.
2: Hey, what's up? Yeah. we don't mean, need I'm an right.
0: introduction, but we'll do it anyways. Okay, so, let's do John Reed, co-founder of DigiNomica. John Reed has been building enterprise communities since 1995. You know, right now, he's more than a roving blogger analyst. He's the man behind all the stuff that's going on at Diginomica, the insightful analysis, the bringing together of communities and teams in the enterprise. And he also advises vendors and startups on how to actually get to that mysterious enterprise buyer. So, But you know what? Sales funnels are discredited. He's actually the man that's behind this. He's thinking about where the future is headed, he's thinking about enterprise. And of course, he brings his whiteboard. He's the Diginomica co-founder, enterprise irregular, and purveyor of all multimedia content. So let's just follow him on John at John ERP. But more importantly, we've got him live now. What are you Thank passionate you about?
2: Man, you guys ready for CCE? This is going to be a major meltdown. It's going to be fun. <laughs> major meltdown <laughs> so. what? What? Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm going to crash the party. We're going to have a good time. But, you know, um, just
0: because it's you, we're going to put you in the ultimate mode because this is where this discussion is going to ring. Oh, back. the ultimate uh-huh. mode. Okay. We, when you go well, to your whiteboard, we'll jump back and get you yeah, into okay. the whiteboard mode so you can go. So, yeah, all right, yeah, what's okay. going
2: on? Yeah, so uh, look, I, I want to give you guys a little uh, teaser and I'm sure we can put our heads together and, and deconstruct a couple of things to help customers. That last segment was awesome, by the way. Um, so... What, what i want to talk about today first is uh is industry clouds um, because everyone's talking about industry clouds and frankly most of it is total bs so i want, I want to explain why that is but i also want to explain why it matters so um, I I picked this article from VentureBeat on why industry clouds are the next best thing, next big thing, and it said industry clouds are a collection of services, tools, and applications optimized for the most important use cases in a specific industry. Now I have my BS button. If I press it, though, it might like to it say thing? not. The Do you want me to press it?
0: That is bullshit.
2: Um, <laughs> I I didn't <laughs> know what it was no going to. No uh, so. We so, yeah, sorry. Sorry we for, the, sorry for the kids. Sorry for the kids watching. But <laughs> frankly, kids probably have better things to do than watch our show. Uh, <laughs> but no. no. So, so really, um, the, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because actually industry clouds, the concepts behind them are actually really, really important. And what the, I care about it because it comes back to this problem, which is that we're in a really different era trying to tackle different kinds of problems than we used to. And your last guest did a great job of articulating some of that, but but so much of this is about things like experiences and automation and all of that stuff. But when you look at the reality for customers, there's almost always what I call green screen products still in use, right? Oh, no. And uh, they don't <laughs> necessarily literally have green screens uh, but you, you get my drift, and there's so many problems with that setup. Um, uh, you know, Silo data is such a problem now, and obviously green screens also you know, present a massive problem for talent and recruitment and all of that stuff. So what you just heard, in my view, is not an industry cloud, but an industry cloud service. Ooh, and that's really di- a service, service. A service okay. is a very specific thing to help you, but it's not an industry cloud. An industry cloud needs to have a lot more components. And I just want to encourage anyone out there evaluating these things to look seriously at things like, and and you guys can maybe help me with this because I don't have a complete list, but things like uh, the ecosystem around it. Are there experts that can help you? Can they benchmark against other companies in your industry. Can you build applications yourself onto that industry cloud? Can other people extend your functionality? How well does it integrate with other stuff? Because a lot of these industry clouds are really lift and shift operations and weird patchwork quilts of old and new software. And so what I guess I just want to get across is that I think it's a cool concept. But we need to ask a lot harder questions around what it looks like and make sure that you're really joining a community of people trying to solve problems. A lot of these industries, uh, initiatives really benefit from open source consortiums and people coming together to share code and functionality in ways they haven't before, which is really cool because historically a lot of companies were just like, oh, I compete against these other companies. I'm not, We're not going to share all this. And I think companies more and more are realizing, hey, we have some common ground here. Let's share some basic code, some basic network, because in the end we're trying to serve customers. We're trying to stay above water. We're trying to stay above rising fuel costs. We want to be sustainable. There's certain things we can share, and if you see the M- Evidence of that going on, now I think we may have an industry cloud, so let's let's really make a distinction there and, and challenge vendors to really provide a complete industry cloud before they call it such. Anyway, do you guys have any comments on what an industry cloud should look like?
0: I, I think it's a great question, right? I think there are no standards as to what an industry cloud is supposed to look like. I think that's perhaps a right. problem, and I think the other piece is the fact that, you know, um, I'm actually looking into the world of cross-industry clouds like retail, manufacturing and distribution. Yeah. What Sanjeev just showed us was pretty interesting because they're in the world of distribution. They're bringing together all these pieces, right? And customers don't care. They don't care what industry is. Right. They just want a solution. So so I see that yeah. as, you know, hospitality, maybe even like healthcare, right, are, are kind of like coming together in, in some interesting ways in terms of how medicine's being delivered. It's concierge based, it's consumer driven, right? So, so I think we're gonna see a lot of interesting uh, variations over time. Yeah.
4: I, I keep hearing more and more, and it, it was interesting, over the last two weeks, very specifically, have heard customers really saying, listen, it's great that there's an industry cloud, and that's great that you kind of put everything in one location, yay, um, because it makes whatever portfolio they're looking at feel less confusing. So that feels like a benefit to them. But what they've all said almost across the board has been, where the value is going to be is actually in your experience with other industries, right? Like Ray, what you just said. So if I'm in financial services, how do I actually deliver experiences that are more like hospitality brands, right? How do I actually deliver, you know, if I'm in manufacturing, how do I create that consumerized experience? Everyone says I should be having a consumerized experience. I don't know what the hell that is. I'm in manufacturing, right? So they're like, it's great that you made it easier for me. I just wanna be like those guys over there though. So I think the concern that I keep hearing is, is this gonna put me in a different silo? Is is this gonna, is an industry cloud gonna keep me in a bucket or is it gonna actually expand my horizons?
2: Right, because this should really be be about interoperability, right? This should be about being able to connect the dots in ways that I haven't even considered before. And, And if you can get users off of terrifying green screen software that is aging out with your aging employees, and, and into so-called industry clouds and it's working for you, then great. But let's let's be a little careful about this term because it's flying like hotcakes. So do you remember a while back on the show, I crashed the metaverse party and I showed you my <laughs> cutting edge goggles that, that, uh, that, that Google sent me as an example of how slow the metaverse is actually going. Well, I, I need to make ooh, a true, ooh, I, I gotta make a real confession again. here. Whoa. I gotta make a real confession here. Check it out. We're gonna watch John. Check it out. I kissed it. Yep, yep. I got my real Quest goggles. What do you think? Pretty they're impressive. They're kind of... I'm they're not right. sure if I can do the. I'm not sure if I can do the rest of the show like this though. It's gonna I don't be a know. I, tough. Would,
0: I, I gave a couple of keynotes in in the uh, metaverse and uh, using uh, Facebook's product, and honestly, I was dizzy by the time I got out of there. You know, it, it just, you know, and I, I'm the guy that actually played like castle Wolfenstein 3d the first time for like three hours straight and like got off and literally it was just sitting somewhere in a corner. <laughs> brutal. Right.
2: So what I just put on, did that look like a product about to go mainstream and revolutionize the world as you know it? No. Uh, I think that looked a little bit like a niche geek product. But um, it took, it took CTD, me, you might
0: see a product that might revolutionize it,
2: the world. it, it that would be nice because i'm flying a long way um but um but um yeah and by the way 90 minutes of setup time and i think i'm pretty good with stuff like that um but anyhow um i want to talk about the metaphors for just a little bit before i expire on this show today because um i want to phrase this i don't want to repeat what i did before but the thing is that i think we're getting into a really treacherous territory here one of my issues is very personal which is that the metaverse as a term that kind of exploded is really the fault of of mostly Zuckerberg with some help from Accenture afterwards. And I just don't personally want those two entities to get credit for these innovations. So I have a problem with that. And it's personal, and I'm just going to admit that. And the reason for that is that the metaverse is actually component built of components that have been under development for a very long time. I I wrote an article about VR and AR in 2016 that if I read it to you now, you would think I wrote it yesterday.
3: Um, Hey dude, you're always ahead of the times, don't worry
2: about it. That's the thing is I don't think of myself as a futurist, but maybe I need to get new business cards. Um, so, so, So here's a broader concern beyond my personal issue, which is the metaverse is a misleading umbrella term that doesn't give customers the precision to evaluate what can work for them. Now, within that context, I think there are some very compelling use cases, we just need to sharpen the definition. So I want to do that a little bit. The metaverse is not Web 3.0, first of all, and Web 3.0 isn't blockchain either. Are we confused yet? So so the metaverse, you know, when you talk about things like augmented reality, virtual reality, digital twins, these are all very compelling. The metaverse doesn't get credit for that stuff, come on, man. That that stuff's been under development for a long time, and and it's ha- and and each has a very discrete purpose and 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 different applications. I happen to be very bullish on augmented reality, and 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 we don't even realize the extent to which we're using it, like 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 GPS, you know. Um, and and you can you can imagine. I, I won't be shocked if ten years from now we're all wearing. Uh, some version of what Google glasses were way back in the day that kind of oh, you know, I, I, I see Liz at the conference It shows me like when I last talked with her it You know it, it tells me what I sh- when her birthday is because I fucked it up last week and didn't get her a present Like I can totally see that but but see that's enhancing reality. That's different than putting on Immersive goggles now um, Immersion is a different kind of thing and we could say well That's metaversy, but um second life and we will heard of that that's been around that life, that, got a
0: second life from what I remember it's doing pretty well
2: <laughs> so. yeah, yeah yeah so so I guess that that would be my first question is what's tr- if we're going to use a term like metaverse like what's truly new that we can truly assign to that term because I'm not sure we need the term I feel Third like life maybe I mean I don't know <laughs> yeah ultra ultra life <laughs> so. and, and 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 by the way we need to take um you know the crypto piece at arm's length as well because there's ways of potentially monetizing the metaverse but it doesn't necessarily involve uh decentralization or crypto i mean personally i i'm a fan of the concept of a decentralized uh internet and i love the promise of that um i don't in terms of metaphors and crypto plays i don't see any signs of that yet but I, i like the idea but i think we can separate those concepts out a little bit now what was interesting is that um is that you know, in this most recent thing, there were some embarrassing headlines about some big metaverse communities that like only have like 38 or 100 uh, people at any one given time and that was embarrassing. But then Mark Zuckerberg kind of saved a little bit of face by announcing a pretty important partnership with Microsoft um, to bring like Teams and 365 to the metaverse. I don't know about you. I don't want to do my Teams meetings in the friggin' metaverse, but the you know, the the point being like like it is a significant partnership. I just want customers to keep in mind that that all these providers, the Accenture's and the Microsofts and the Metas, they're going to make money on this whether or not the technology really pans out in an ROI case on an individual level. You won't. You don't have that luxury. So you need to be asking tougher questions. And so before we That's end my way. segment, I have my tougher questions yeah, he and, has now, so, and now tougher yeah. questions from john reed <laughs> yeah yeah so, so, so i mean some of these are some of these are a little basic but first is define it so you know is it ar is it vr like what what actually are we talking about here kind of covered that the next one is also pretty obvious which is now let's challenge your provider to define it for your industry like how are companies in your industry using it um the next one would be uh does it require immersive experiences or or headsets uh you know that's going to be a a major criteria as far as whether this is actually going to be a slow adopter or not now obviously niche use cases maybe so because maybe maybe there's a service a field service employee that can can benefit from that but that's different than mass adoption and exclusion so one of the big things is that in in like a, a lot of things that i see about the metaverse, is like, oh, well, um, employees are using it for virtual training and stuff. That's fine. But I, I feel kind of bad for employees who have um, uh, issues like who get dizzy or who get nausea or motion sickness. And now they're being required now to do training. One of the beauties of these video call things is that at least in progressive organizations, they don't require you to be on video or not. The whole idea of the omni-world of the enterprise is about providing choice for customers and employees, not driving them herd-like into a platform they may not be comfortable with. And so, I hope we can really step back because a lot of the metaverse use cases I hear is like, oh, such-and-such such firm trades all their employees on the metaverse. Well, by coincidence, they also sell the metaverse to customers, so I, I get that. but. Um, But are are we going to force this down people's throats? Is that really a a use case? And you know, in my case, for example, I played a lot of sports when I was younger. I have concussions, and like I I can I can do the metaverse thing for a while, but I don't feel great afterwards. I I don't like throw up, but I'm not going to wear headsets all day long. That's just not happening for me physically. I I'm, I'm not the only one. I looked up. I found a bunch of articles on that in like five minutes of people's. Expressing their concerns about flashing lights, different things. Why don't we talk about any of this stuff? Are we just gonna hype this to the expense and exclusion of 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 the people that supposedly bring great experiences to our customers? I don't think that's right. Why aren't we having those conversations? So so that's I think a really, really important aspect. I don't know if you guys have anything to say, Liz. You were nodding your head like crazy. So
4: I, I was because listen, I, I think that with the metaverse, I think it's really about identifying what the specific business use cases, at least for for enterprises, right? You have to define those specific use cases, and then understand, you know, and I I totally agree with you, you got to understand that what Mark Zuckerberg is doing is painting a door into the metaverse blue. He's not building the metaverse, right? Um, And and so I think that, you know, everyone's going to have their colored door, everyone's going to have their door that people can choose or not choose to enter through. And I think the, you know, when, when I think of the metaverse, I tend to really emphasize that idea that it's it's not just an immersive experience, because I think that's just half of it. It's a shared immersive experience where it's actually two entities coming together and you're one of the entities. So you get to choose and you get to focus on what it is that your decision is. And I think the hard thing for people to wrap their heads around with metaverse business use cases, and I mean, constellation, I know Ray, Diane, I mean, everyone's kind of coming up with these very specific business use cases, whether it's training, whether it is experience development, journey like very, very specific. But I think every single time it comes down to it's a shared immersive experience where some form of community, some form of commerce, and that currency is all being developed concurrently and in that moment. So is it blockchain? For one experience, it might be. Is it good old fashioned, I'm going to send you a check for, it might be, you know, it might be Venmo and another, the whole point of the metaverse, at least from my perspective is that the two entities involved are creating that moment together in equal pairing. I think field service is a great example of where we're seeing strides in the metaverse that could a field tech have the glasses on. Yes. But could someone be at home on a call that looks just like this? Yes. Right. And could right. someone actually be in the field with a tablet holding it up to the billion dollar transformer? Double yes. People can be in different locations and still be in that shared immersion that allows everyone to feel front and center.
2: Absolutely. And so, oh, sorry, you guys say something, Ray? No, no, go ahead. We got a, got a few seconds. Keep going. Yeah. So so just real quick, because I know, I know I'm about to e- expire. Um, the other big one is prepare for the metaverse, quote unquote. And my only issue with that is, how does that stack up against all your other customer needs and tech investments? Prepare for 5G, prepare for edge computing, prepare for low code, prepare for blockchain, prepare for zero day attacks, prepare for embedded AI, Uh prepare for three day printing, prepare for quantum computing, prepare for hyper automation. Sure, go ahead and prepare for everything. Is that realistic? So, uh, So the point is, prioritize and we need people who are expert in these technologies who can break down even further than we just did and isolate the use cases that are really compelling and transform the experiences of our customers and do it in a way that doesn't exclude people but includes people and if you can do that then i'll put my goggles on and i'll be right there with you because i got my goggles i don't want them to become hood ornaments i want to use them um so i i'm not a luddite but i want people to take this conversation in a different more precise direction that's my thing for today
0: so pragmatic metaverse. We're here with John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica, Thanks. making fun of industry clouds and pragmatic metaverses, making sure that they come to resistance. He's Bye, a himself. Follow my Twitter at and <laughs> erp. J-O-N-E-R-P. See you in ten days. See you, in 10
2: you can days, see what bro. it's going to be like. This Bye. is going to be awesome. Take care.
0: Happy Friday. Bye.
4: See you, bud. <laughs> We're in and so speaking much trouble. Of rap,
0: and speaking of Joel. foresight and folks that actually think into the future, we've got Joel Bynes. So Joel Bynes, author of The Me-Tail Economy, Six Strategies for Transforming Your Business to Thrive in the Me-Centric Consumer Revolution. We're in the middle of that, if you haven't figured that out. Joe Bynes is the Managing Director and Co-Head of the Global Retail Practice at the business consulting firm Alex Partners. He's widely regarded as one of the world's leading operational strategists with a 30-year track record of improving performance at retailers, brands, and consumer economies companies. He's probably 40 under 40. Among the media that look to him for analyses are The New York Times, Business Insider, CNBC, and The Wall Street Journal. And of course, I do see him on TV a bunch. And you can follow him on Twitter at Joel underscore Bynes.
1: Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ray and Liz. It's really my pleasure to be here. How are you both?
4: Oh, doing great. Doing great. Okay, so I got I got to take the first question
1: here. Go ahead, Because, away. Big,
4: cause, cause, and it's kind of like the perfect segue from, from John, right? Since we were talking about definitions, right? So I think it's only fair to ask you to define who is, what is, where is. Tell me more about this new me-centric consumer that you talk about in your book.
1: Yeah, I'll be happy to. Before I do that though, I, I just, I got to say, listening to the conversations uh, that preceded this, I, I'm just fascinated. And I was really struck by two things. The first one is, how little I actually know about technology. I'm just like blown away by what they, they, what um, uh, John and Sanjeev were talking about. Uh, but the second thing I was struck by is how relevant the meat economy book is for what's happening in the technology right. space. There was so much of the conversation that I was listening to where I thought to myself, well, this is not just a consumer revolution. This is an employee revolution. This is a business to business revolution. This is a distribution strategy revolution. Because the principles that underpin this me-centric consumer, and I promise I'm about to answer your question, Liz, the principles that underpin this are exactly the same for the questions that, that Sanjeev and, and, and John and others are, are asking about their respective uh, slices of the world, distribution platforms or the metaverse, which or, or commerce clouds, which I don't even know what any of that stuff is. So, um, so that's back to number one. But here's, here's what a me-centric consumer is. The, the, the me-centric consumer didn't just show up. Consumers have always been self-centric. We always put ourselves first and try to put ourselves in the center of the universe. But what the me-centric consumer today is, is enabled by access and information, access to information through technology and access to one another. So I, I say in the book, um, I appreciate the forty under forty, but that would have meant I started working when I was ten years old. I am of the generation that used to use Consumer Reports if you were going to make a, a big decision. If I was going to, buy oh, a that one, was the point. We, we thought you started very oh, My here. car, yes, exactly. Right, you'd you'd go you'd go to the the magazine. You go to the library. And library then early on. You'd go to the, the the early web, and you know, and you'd look up Consumer Reports. Well, now we actually care more about consumers' reports than we care about the experts' reports, and so the me-centricity has has. has been enabled by this access to technology and access to each other. That's the first part of the me centric consumer. But the second part, which is even more important is the notion of a quantum consumer, which I talk about in the book. Now I was a philosophy major at a liberal arts college in Maine. So uh, the last physics class I took was probably high school, but basically this concept of a quantum particle that can exist in two places simultaneously. That's what I talk about, about this me centric quantum consumer, which is because of technology, I can now be two, three, four, an infinite number of consumers at the exact same moment in time, which was impossible prior to the technologies being enabled to do that. So when you combine the ability to actually manifest the me centricity, not just to be selfish, but to be able to act in a selfish way. And I mean selfish in the good use of the word selfish, although you could say the bad as well. But now we can act on it much, much more easily with far less friction than before, and you add the quantum consumer nature to that, that's the definition of a me-centric consumer. And that's changed everything about retail consumer businesses. And that's the me in the me-tail economy. Uh-oh, Ray, I can't hear you. I was
0: dying to ask if the me-tail consumer is like schizophrenic, like do they act differently? Like is there a certain profile, like, like why, why is it so hard to track them down?
1: Well, the, it's not that it's not that it's hard to track them down. What's, what, what, is, what is hard is because of the me centricity and the quantum nature, consumers are not in reliable demographics anymore. So, so my generation grew up learning how to target demographic clusters of consumers. And and because it was fairly difficult to penetrate the membrane of the demographic that you were in uh, it rapidly, you could really reliably target these consumer demographics, and um, now because of this me-centricity and the quantum nature, I can actually be multiple consumers simultaneously. So it's virtually impossible to target me because I'm not a, I'm not a reliable demographic anymore. I'm multiple demographics at the same time, and I can shape shift at the same time. One of the things that I say about in my, in my in, say in the book is. You know, if you it it doesn't this is not a political conversation, doesn't matter what you think about this. But Facebook has over 70 different definitions of gender. Okay, so like you, this is this if you think about if you think about the math behind targeting demographics, when gender goes from two to 70, the math of trying to find even just a basic demographic to target, much less the lookalikes that we would try to target around the demographics to get more customers, it just becomes impossible. It's an infinite number of yeah, numbers, I mean, this, simultaneous this, equations.
0: These new behavioral models are, are actually very different, right? They're not the normal demos we had looked at. And, and digital creates a reinforcement mechanism. And what it does is like in, in a digital world, every choice is a, di- is a demand signal. right? It's a yeah. dynamic feedback loop. You have attribution. You know what happened. You know what process. You know you even have blink rate, like if you're one of those like you know, headsets, right? And and, and that really is changing the way we look at things. And you talk about these six C's. Um, I can't remember them, something like curation or cost or convenience, right? And we got three of them. Talk through the six C's. I, I did try to read the book. Talk through the six C's and, and figure out and tell us more about that and how that is changing that demo and what people are doing.
1: So Before I, before I talk about the six C's, I want to talk about what the book is about. The book is in three parts. The first part of the book creates the case for the me-centric consumer and the me-tail economy. So mm-hmm. y- you only have to read the first third of the book. If you don't believe if you if you don't buy my arguments, if you don't look at the examples I use and you think about what's happened to the consumer much, much more rapidly over the millennia that we we sort of previously worked with our customers in, um, then you could just put the book down. But if you do buy the premise, then you move into the second part of the book, which is about how do companies Think about building sustainable relationships with this new me-centric quantum consumer. That's what the six Cs are about. But unlike most management consultants that write books, I'm not trying to sell a consulting project. I wrote this book because I spent my entire career (laughs) in retail. And tens of millions of people make their livelihood in retail, from farmers to truck drivers to – sales associates to distribution and warehousing workers and technology people and everything in between. So it really matters to me that that companies figure this out. And so what I say about the six C's is they are ingredients. They're just ingredients. There's no framework. It's not like, well, if you do this, then you will become that. I, I would say in the book, like, you know, the, the consultants that write books that sort of say, well, companies X, Y, and Z did this. And so we put it in a matrix. And if you do this, you're going to be successful. That's like my high school basketball coach telling me to go home and work on getting tall. Like that's just not going to happen, right? We're all different. So, so the first thing is, it's not. I'm not proscribing anything. I'm not t- saying do this and you will become great. I'm saying there are six ways you can build relationships with consumers, with employees, with vendor partners in this new me-centric, me-tail economy. So, the six are cost, convenience, category expertise, customization, curation, and community. Those are the six Cs. And I go into each one in detail. And what I say about them is just like the kind of the great cooking shows that are out there, we all have the same basket of six ingredients, okay? And you are going to cook your recipe and make your dish with maybe four of them or two of them or a pinch of one and five of the others or one entire and none at all. But but it's up to you to figure out how you use these things because to me, these six things kind of distill ways we can create commercial relationships with people over time. They seem to, to when I sort of distilled it down, they kind of get to the very, very base element. You'll notice experience isn't a C. Um, experience is important. We talk a lot about experiential retail. You also know customer service isn't to see one of my favorite stories in the book that I tell is uh, about this incredible curator um, in Boston, Massachusetts, that my wife used to love to buy clothes, still does love to buy clothes from. And I won't spoil it in the book, but um, let's just say she doesn't provide great customer service and she's still a place that that people really go to because they curate an experience for a certain segment of people. So you can make a living doing a lot of different things differently. It's not just about, oh, be good at customer service and people will follow. That's just not good enough anymore.
0: Agreed. I, so Agreed. Speaking, it is definitely so true.
4: It, I love it. And I, and I love the season. I mean, I guess the question is, I mean, like, I mean, hey, cooking is a great example, right? Because you could have... You could be at the grocery store and look at all the different ingredients out there, right? And mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I want to try them all. But if you tried them all in one dish, it's going to taste really oh, nasty. Yeah, <laughs> that is not the way you want to go, just yeah. trust me. So how do you recommend organizations actually
1: prioritize Yeah kind of where those C's land. Well, this is, I mean, you know, that's that—that's what the third part of the book is all about. So the third part of the book that's is- That's part like,
0: of the book, actually.
1: Yeah. No, but it's precisely about how do you connect this me-centric consumer and the six C's to your own business and your own operations, which is why I was so fascinated by what Sanjeev was saying, because he was really talking about the exact same thing from a digital transformation lens. And the phrase he used towards the end of the interview that I loved was match possibility with feasibility. Those aren't the words that I use in the book, but I basically say the same thing, which is you have to rise up to a a strategy level that allows you to forget about who you are and what your limitations are But I say it's like a hot air balloon. You have to stay tethered to the ground because we all have limitations as businesses, as human beings. So you can't let the limitations stop you from determining what sea recipe you need to uh, target and then build relationships and grow with your me-centric consumers. But at the same time, feasibility, which was his word you have to match that possibility with feasibility that is a really important concept that i draw out in the book because then you have to build from the bottom up as opposed to kind of the the high level strategy down because what winds up happening is companies you know, i've been doing i was in the industry for half my career and i've been in in consulting for about a little under 20 years and and what i've noticed is whether i was in the industry side or whether i'm in the consulting side a lot of companies do a really good job of the strategy and many companies do a really good job of embarking on the journey to implement the strategy but then they drift and they drift off course without remembering that they had set a north star and they just allow that drift and they don't really look up and I said that you have to look up often and, and really make sure you're still heading in the right direction and course correct back because if you've done the work to decide up front you know where you need to go already. Um, so that's you know that that's what the third chapter of the book is all about but I loved his phrase. I thought that was, that was That's very, right.
2: very smart. Okay. Well, I love
0: the third chapter. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, this could have been a book about loyalty and it wasn't. And, and mm-hmm. we so thankful. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, That's
1: no, good. no, no. I, 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 you know, I spent two and a half years writing the book and longer researching it and everything else. I, I really, I struggled with some of those concepts, um, but I deliberately, I don't really, I'm not even sure I'll have to, I could do a word search. I don't even think I use the word loyalty no. in the book.
0: No, not a single word on loyalty. And what's interesting is what, what's happening at this moment is people are trading loyalty for convenience, loyalty for yep. availability, loyalty right. for status, loyalty for value. They're just not loyal. Right. right. And yeah. we keep seeing that in the marketplace. And here you've got this you know book that's coming out from the other direction, which is basically saying, yeah, you know why they're not loyal? Because they're not following the six C's. Well, also, well, also like,
1: I think that I think that we confused loyalty historically. I think we confused yeah. it with not having any other choice. That that that's that kind is. of my point, right? That's not loyalty. That's
0: not loyalty. That's right? we, just,
1: we just we just at all. We have this loyal customer base, and it's like yeah, kind of, but really they just don't have really any other choice. So or the or the the friction. To choose something else is just a little bit too great, so that they're not going to do it.
0: Impressive,
1: impressive. <laughs> well, I don't know about you. that, but that's like this is my <laughs> this is my thesis. The consumer world is very important to me. The more I listen to business people talk about the challenges that businesses are facing, particularly, you know, Sanjeev used the phrase consumerization and distribution. That's a really interesting concept. And John talked a lot about, about, um, you know, this open source shared code notion of whatever an industry cloud is. I'm not even going to pretend that I understand any of that, but but I'm listening to them think about the same problems that we're wrestling with, because if you think about, you want to create a closed walled garden in this commerce cloud, you're going to be competing against businesses who are acting like consumers who have more information. So if you if your strategy is to restrict information and restrict access, then you have to think about what's going to happen in the future when customer switching costs are basically zero. Right. And so so that's that that was what I was intrigued by in the dialogue. I would really need to know more to know. But that's the whole point of the book.
0: Switching cost is zero. I mean, that's the assumption you got to start with.
1: That's exactly the point I make in the book. And when you operate in a world where switching costs is is zero and your customers are actually getting their information from their peers and colleagues, there is no merchant prince anymore. Right. Those days are gone. And so now we're back to a world where the consumer is calling the shots. I basically people say, well, what is the meat tail economy? I say it is the democratization of consumerism.
0: It is. It is. And we're definitely seeing that in every single interaction. We're seeing that across the board and how customers try to engage. Customers don't really want to engage. Like yeah. no customer says, I want to engage with my brand. It's really fun. I mean, that's, that's not They decide true.
4: which department they want to, like, you know, I really like shopping there, but only in the online channel. They don't think like that, but, no. but the other, you know, here's, so here's something that I want to toss out there because you actually don't believe in all this hype around the retail apocalypse.
1: Hmm. Yeah. No, I don't buy that.
4: You don't buy it. Why? Okay. What's going on? Lots of other folks say that it's happening. You do not believe that.
1: Well, I mean, look, if you work for a retailer or a consumer business or really any business um, and, and, and you're one of the unfortunate ones that don't make it, it is apocalyptic for you. (laughs) <laughs> OK, so I don't want to be glib about this, right? I mean, if. if the for you. The system, yeah, it's this that's apocalyptic for that, that that narrow slice. But but the, the consumer economy in the United States and globally is consistently growing. It is not apocalyptically collapsing. What's happening is, is not a. The, the consume. I talk about the retail economy as a real revolution. Okay, because what we have for the first time is we have a full inversion of power. Companies used to have the power; consumers could choose to consume or not. Now consumers have all of the power in the relationship. There's no piece of information and no access that's not available to the consumer. So now they have all of the information they need and all the access they need to control the narrative. So they have stormed the castle and take it over. That's a real revolution. What we've had up till now is disruption after disruption, but not a revolution. And the difference between a disruption and a revolution is after a revolution, it never goes back to the way it was before the revolution. Never, ever, ever. Not historically and not in the consumer or business economy, but after a disruption. It's a little bit like turbulence when you're flying an airplane. You shake around for a little while and everybody grabs their hands, you know, their 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 uh, whatever armrests and looks at each other sideways. And then then the turbulence dies. and Everybody kind of goes back to business and forgets that there's turbulence. And then turbulence happens and everyone says, oh, it's apocalypse. We're going to die. And then the turbulence dies down again. That's that's basically it's just disruption after disruption. Yeah. But the retail economy is a real revolution. Mm-hmm. This is and it's happened in the blink of an eye. We've been trading, you know, stuff for stuff for millennia. okay, and it's been exactly the same way. People have stuff. If you need stuff, you either get the stuff and give them something of value or you don't get the stuff. But it was always the people that had the stuff who were in charge. okay. well, after the last 12 to 15 years, because of technology, but not because of the, you know, the Internet or e-commerce, but just because of what technology has enabled us to do, we now have the power and that will never go back to the way it was before and that's what i'm trying to drive home in this book
0: and you did it really really well where nice. he stole binds the author of The Me-Tail Economy, Six Strategies for Transforming Your Business to Thrive in the Me-Centric Consumer Revolution. We are in the middle of that revolution and Joel is activating movements as we talk. You can follow him on Twitter at Joel underscore Bynes. Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank
1: you, Ray. Thank you, Liz. It was really- good uh, where will
0: you be next? We're, you're not gonna speak into what, NRF?
1: Oh Yeah, uh, retail tends to get pretty busy this time of year. So I'm done oh, with my, my speaking shit. engagements um, and the 2023 speaking engagements are, are coming into place. The last one I just did, was a retail tech conference in Nashville, which was total retail tech. It was fantastic. I will let you know which ones I'm coming on uh, as soon as they get into shape for 2023.
0: Well, Joe, have an amazing Friday and thank uh, you, you know, Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you both. It was great to meet you both. Thanks.
0: The fastest hour in enterprise leadership tech and more importantly, what's happening new in the world. Um, yeah. What do you think, Fine. Liz? Where are we headed today?
4: Where, where are we headed? We're, we're in the Final, what is it, the last runway, the last, what do we call it? straight, I can't even remember. We're almost <laughs> at CCE, right?
0: I know. We are 10 days away from Constellations Connected Enterprise, the one of the largest gatherings of forward-thinking digital leaders. Um, they're coming from all over the place. Um, what are you looking forward towards?
4: You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to everything. Is everything an okay answer? I think that's an okay answer. You know, (laughs) I, I, having looked at the speaker lineup, I'm super pumped about it. Um, you know, anytime I can hear a certain, uh, former reformed marketer, can I call Chris a reformed marketer?
0: Um, I don't know if you'd be okay with that term, but I think that's the closest way to describe him.
4: Yeah, like I don't know, potty mouth marketer. I mean, like my 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 kindred spirit as potty mouth marketer. Anytime I can hear Chris talk, I mean, amazing. The lineup is great, but I think the thing I'm I'm most excited about is just hearing people talk about. Those advancements, right? The disruptions, because I think that more than anything, CCE is all about the disruptors getting together and they learn from each other and how to be more disruptive. And I love hearing that because you just know it's going to set off another wave. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. What about you?
0: Days away, and you know what? We're three episodes away from episode 300 next. Oh my god. Next week, episode 298, we're going to have a double episode with Tom Peters. He'll be on for 40 minutes. Business author and Amazing. speaker. And Mindy Weinstein, author of The Power of Scarcity which is a very, very fascinating book. So those two will be up on the show on October 21st, episode 298. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, TV. 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, our special co-host, Liz, thank you so much for being on the show with us after coming from a massive trip from Morocco. Thank you.
4: Hey, hashtag hosting for Vala. It's going to stick, I'm telling you right now.
0: Hosting for Vala, asking for Vala. Follow those hashtags when you look at CCE 2022, October 24th to 27th. Thank you, everybody, and have an awesome Friday. (laughs) Okay. <laughs>